Amen. Thank you, Tim, for that good song, for all the songs this morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Mark chapter 2, please. The Gospel according to Mark and the second chapter. As you turn there, I want, I want you to go back to the day that you got saved. I want you to think about that. The day that you surrendered your life to the Lord. The day that God took the weight of sin and guilt and shame off your back. You remember that day? It was a significant day. Now, for some of you here, you may say, I don't remember that day because I've never given my life to the Lord. I've never surrendered my life to Him. Well, today we have this opportunity to look at this story in Scripture about the conversion of a man who was a tax collector. And, uh, and he was a sinner, and his name was Levi. And we're going to see just kind of the natural part of conversion, which is to begin to invite people, your lost friends, to meet the one who changed your life, which was Jesus. And uh, Jesus has changed our lives, hasn't he? Mark chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, let me know. After the service, we'll get one for you. We'd like to give you a Bible. Uh, I believe the greatest spiritual discipline that we can have is is that we would learn to engage with the Word. I like the way our pastor encourages us to do that, that we would have a a daily, meaningful time alone with the Lord. And it's so important that uh, we get into the Word of God until the Word gets into us. And we want the Word to just saturate our lives. Uh, The Bible says here in Mark chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 13. We'll just read a few verses uh, this morning. But the Bible says in verse 13, And he went forth again by the seaside... And all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. This was a tax collector's booth. And he said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And so I just want to talk to you briefly this morning about verses 13 and 14. From this perspective, Jesus' invitation leads to our transformation. All right, Jesus' invitation leads to our transformation. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for who you are. And God, I'm, I'm thankful that we have a relationship with you. And God, we can know you. God, that we can enter into your presence. And uh, God, we're just so thankful that you would, that you would care enough to, to send your son to die for us. And uh, that we could... Be called a friend, a friend of God. And uh, God, I pray for everyone here this morning that you would speak to to them, speak to all of us. God, help us to be obedient to you as we look at this passage of Scripture and pull some things out. God, I pray that that you would help us, give us understanding. And uh, we'll thank you and we'll praise you for all that you do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me tell you about the life of Levi. Uh, Levi is a professional tax collector. Now, tax collectors in the first century were very hated. Uh, just very, uh, very hated men in all of Israel. They were predominantly Jewish-born individuals uh, who had really turned on their own people. Uh, they were obsessed with success. They were obsessed with gain. They were obsessed with making money. And here's what happened. Rome would assign uh, to these people a, a chair and a table 
And that chair and table would be on a very busy uh, part uh, of the street, populated street. So Levi would have sat here in this chair, and as people would come through the town, he had the authority to, to stop, them at any, stop them at any time that he wanted, uh, make them empty their bags, and he could tax them on anything that they uh, had with them, anything that they were carrying with them. Uh, he could tax them for any amount that he wanted. The only thing that he was responsible for is at the end of the month, he would have to uh, give a lump sum to Rome. So anything that he made on top of that was his own. So you could tell that it was a very uh, lucrative business. And if people didn't have the money, he could say, hey, we can loan you the money. We can loan you the money at a very high interest rate. And he had the right to do that. So you can imagine everyone in Israel hated him. It would almost be like someone in our, in our American military uh, turning their back on their country and becoming a spy. I mean, this, this guy was just hated among people. His family was disgusted with him. He was an outcast. He was despised. In fact, one of the penalties for being a tax collector is that you could never again in your life enter the synagogue or the temple. You, you, could, you couldn't enter in. And so this man, again, he was an outcast. He, he, he was rotten. He was vile. He was wicked. As a matter of fact, they say that if a tax collector entered your home, uh, it would be deemed unclean. And they actually had to go through a purification process just because a tax collector was in your home. So this was the world of Levi. Levi was a man who lived in this kind of world. He was hated. Everyone hated him. And here's what I want us to do. Knowing that, I want to bring you into the day that this man, Levi, meets Jesus. Levi's there sitting at the table, uh, there at the receipt of custom, this tax collector's booth. And it was probably just like any other day, just a normal day for him. And what we're going to see here is a clash between the holiest man that's ever walked the face of the earth and one of the most despised men here in in this town. And they're going to come together. And the crossroads of Levi's life came to him in the form of a man named Jesus. And Jesus offers Levi two very simple words in the English language, and it's follow me. And so you can picture this in your mind, that Levi is sitting there just like any other normal day. And here's this uh, Jewish rabbi that walks by, and he gives them these words, follow me. Those two words are enough to crush Levi's hardened heart. And he has a choice at this point. Should he respond to this man or should he stay where he is? That's a hard choice, I'm sure. And the Bible tells us it was an immediate choice. We'll talk about that in a second. But when I, when I go through this in my mind, I think that, that had to have been a hard thing for Levi. Uh, you have to understand, he would be giving up, he would be giving up a lot. Here at this point, I can almost see him, his hands shaking, his forehead sweating, his palms sweating. And he pushes himself back from the table and he asks himself maybe this question, do I, do I follow Jesus or do I stay here? One of the things uh, you notice about the call of, of, of Levi that's really unlike any other of the disciples is that at no other time in the Gospels do you see Jesus calling an individual. Uh, If you follow through the New Testament, you see that when Jesus calls his disciples, he either calls them in pairs or he calls them in a group. 
But here in this passage, he calls Levi as an individual. And why would, he, why would he call Levi this way? Because Levi is the epitome of what God is going to do by changing a man under the divine wrath of God and turning him into a trophy of God's unending love. It's going to be an amazing picture. And that's what he's about to do. And so Levi decides he's going to do that. He's going to leave it all behind. And there's no hesitation. It says that he just immediately arose and followed him. You have to understand something about Levi and about being a tax collector. He would have worked his way up through the channel. And if he leaves his place at the table, that's it for him. Because what would have happened when Levi left the table, uh, Rome would have just appointed someone the very next day. And you can't come back. Once, once you leave, you cannot come back. So Levi, we may ask him, you know, what, what are you going to do about your house? What are you going to do about your income? Are you willing to give up all of that? Really, you can't go back after this, Levi. What are you going to do? It's very different from any other apostle that followed Jesus. Why, why, is, why is Levi different? Because Peter and Andrew, they could have gone back to fishing if it didn't work out. You know, James and John, they go back to fishing if it doesn't work out. If Levi leaves the table, he loses everything. I can't emphasize that enough. He loses everything to follow a broke, itinerant, traveling rabbi named Jesus. And what's mind-blowing is this. Again, he simply gets up and he follows him immediately. Immediately. Now, Mark doesn't insert this word, but the Dr. Luke does. So make your way over here to Luke chapter 5. If you ever want to read a gospel story and it's in a parallel account. So if you see a story in the book of Mark, uh, you want to see if that same account is in the other gospel records, Matthew or Luke or John. And if the story is in Luke, you're in for a treat. Because Luke is a doctor. He's very meticulous about his words. Uh, with surgical precision, he, he inserts these words that make a big impact. And so Luke chapter 5, I want to show you this account. I want uh, to show you this insight that Luke gives that kind of solidifies Levi's call. Look at verse 27 of Luke 5. The Bible says, And after these things he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And notice these words, And he left all. He left all, rose up, and followed him. The phrase left all implies a once and for all turning away. Really, it's a complete cutoff. It's a complete abandonment. It's a, it's a detachment from one's past. And it means once and for all. So what it means is he's leaving his wealth. He's leaving his dreams. He's leaving his goals. He's leaving any kind of desires that he may have to follow follow Jesus. And when he follows Jesus, something radical happens. Okay, so, so not just physically, but his identity changes so much that we see here that Jesus even changes his name. You see, you're reading him as Levi, but Jesus changes his name to Matthew. Now, what do we know about Matthew? Well, Matthew is the one that wrote the first gospel record in our New Testament. This is a man who, in a sense, was the scum of the earth and now God has entrusted Matthew to be this great evangelist in the New Testament. You see, whenever God changes someone's name in the Bible, it's always changing their identity. 
You think about different people in the past, different people in the Old Testament. I think about Abram in the Old Testament. You guys remember him? He was married to Sarai. Abram in the Old Testament meant high father. God changed his name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. Then Sarai, his wife, means princess. When God meets her, he changes her name to Sarah, which means mother of many nations. Jacob's name, uh, one of the sons of Isaac, his name meant supplanter. We know things about Jacob, like he was a deceiver and uh, he was, he was a, a liar. God changed his name to what? Israel, which means having power with God. So I think it's interesting here that he meets uh, this guy named Levi and uh, his name is changed to Matthew. So Levi, this, this swindler, this con artist, uh, this manipulator, he's changed to Matthew. And, and the name Matthew means this, gift from God. It means gift from God. And you know what? When, when you came to the Lord Jesus Christ, he gave you a new identity as well. We're not the same person. Uh, the Bible says in one place that we are actually a new creation. We, he doesn't just change our heart. He gives us a completely new heart. We're a different person. We have a new identity. Uh, we're not who we once were. We, we become who God promised us to be. Now, how can Matthew leave everything behind and follow Jesus? Because, again, we read that it's very immediate. He simply gets up and follows him. How could he do that? Here's what I think. I think Matthew understood who the Lord was. I think he did. I think he had an understanding of who God was. I believe Matthew grew up in an environment uh, where he knew all about God. He was a very religious uh, person growing up because that's what every Jewish boy did back then. They learned the, the Torah, and the Nevim, the Ketavim, and the Old Testament, and the prophets. And they read all of these things and memorized all of these things. He was raised studying the scripture. Uh, Matthew was, in a sense, raised going to the synagogue. Uh, so Matthew, I believe, would have learned the word of God. He would have memorized the word of God. Uh, he checked all the boxes. So I would say that Matthew, for a season of his life, was a very religious person. Now, how do we know that? You say, Daniel, how... How do you know that? This is how I get it, because Matthew's gospel, get this, he uses more quotations from the Old Testament than Mark, Luke, and John combined. And so this is a man, Matthew, who knew the Word of God. Uh, he knew the Old Testament. In fact, Matthew had such a respect for God and his name that he doesn't even want to use the word God in his gospel record. Uh, he inserts the word heaven for the word God all throughout his gospel record in Matthew. He uses this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that's a, that's a uh, instead of kingdom of God that we read in other places. Uh, the gospels alone, uh, that phrase kingdom of heaven is used 32 times in the gospel records. Guess how many times it's used in the book of Matthew? All 32 times. So this is a man, I believe, who, who at least knew God. Uh, he knew about God. He was raised as a Jewish boy in the synagogue, so he would have memorized things about God. But somewhere along the way, Matthew got sidetracked. And I believe what we're seeing here is, is a man who missed the presence of God. He yearned for a relationship with God. I believe Matthew really wanted to know God, but something happened in his life. You know, he's very similar to the rich young ruler. Very similar situation. Uh, you know, Matthew, 
the rich young ruler, they both had every opportunity to sell it all and follow Jesus. And the rich young, young ruler missed it. So I believe Matthew was not about to miss this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Uh, he wanted to have a relationship. He wanted to move from having religion to having a relationship with the God of heaven. And there may be some people in here today who are looking at me right now, and you too maybe have missed the presence of God. You may say, I, I was raised in church. I uh, went to all the vacation Bible schools. I went to Sunday school every week. And uh, I went to everything that the church had to offer, all the special meetings and, and, and everything. But in your heart of hearts, you may say, you know what? I, I don't really have a relationship with Christ. I know about God, but I don't really have a relationship with God. You may be wondering, how do, how do I know if I'm walking with God? How, how, how do I know if I have a relationship with God? Well, do you have a desire for the things of God? Do you have a desire for prayer to communicate with God? Do you have a desire to read God's word? Let me ask you a personal question. If someone stole your Bible today in your home, how long would it take for you to figure it out? You know, we're getting ready for church Sunday, next Sunday, and we're looking around. Hey, has anyone seen my Bible? I haven't seen it in a week, two weeks, maybe a month or a year. Do we have these desires? Matthew knew what, what, uh, that he was uh, religious as a child, but he didn't know Christ. And Jesus is about to offer him an invitation that's going to really lead to transformation for the rest of his life. But don't miss this. The transformation wasn't just for him. You see, when a believer is transformed by the gospel, it always leads us to an invitation. So our transformation leads us to an invitation. Okay, God's invitation leads to our transformation. But our transformation should lead to an invitation. And the invitation is always to the lost. You see, the natural part of your Christian life is that the gospel came to you because it was heading to someone else. And uh, yes, it's about your transformation, but your transformation actually leads to an invitation. Look in our passage, Mark chapter 2, verse 15. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in, the, in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. So now they're, they're in Matthew's house. There are many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? And by the way, whenever you read that in Scripture, you'll always find those two things lumped together. Publicans, tax collectors, and sinners. How would you like to have that linked to, to your title? You know, I'm a stay-at-home mom and sinner. Or I'm a pastor and sinner. You know, it's, just this, it's always linked together in Scripture. It says in verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, they that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What he's saying here is self-righteous. Okay, self-righteous people. Those who don't think they need help. And I want you to see what Matthew does. Okay, after Matthew is radically saved, what, what do we see here in this passage? What does Matthew do? He throws a party, right? He, he, ha, he opens up his home and we see him there with Jesus and other disciples. 
And who does he invite? Well, he invites the people that he knows. Tax collectors, sinners, that's all he knows. So what does Matthew do? He starts with the people closest to him. And then he goes out from there. He invites them to see Jesus. Why, why does he do this? Because he knows that salvation in Christ is the greatest event that could ever happen in a person's life. To know Christ. Listen to what J.C. Ryle said. I think it's on the screen for you. Salvation is a far more important event than being married or coming of age or being made a nobleman or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is a passage from death to life. It is being made a king and priest forevermore. It is being provided for both in time and eternity. It is adoption into the noblest and richest of all families, the family of God. Isn't that amazing? What, 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 a, what a blessing it is to know Christ. Not just... Not just that we have heaven to look forward to, but that he would care for us now and that we can have a relationship with him now. And this is what happens when you surrender your life to Christ. And, and, and Levi knows that, yes, his salvation is personal. But listen, your salvation should never be private. Your salvation, it is. I agree. It's a, it's a, it's a personal experience with God, but it should never be a private experience with God. Your salvation should never be kept to yourself. It's not something that we keep to ourselves. We want to to share that with other people. It needs to be yelled from the rooftops to those who would listen. Matthew says, I'm going to call my friends. Wait, Matthew, you you know these guys are sinners, right? Yeah, bring them on. Okay, wait, they're tax collectors. Yeah, bring them in. He starts with his sphere of influence, and he goes out from there. It just so happens that that's the people he knows. It's the people he's rubbed elbows with. Now, do you know that you have a different sphere of influence than I do? You know people that I don't know, and I know people that you don't know. Uh, you know, we have people, you know, Eric, he, he likes music, and I don't know if he still does, but he used to play in a bluegrass. Do you still do that? Okay, he plays in a bluegrass band. Okay, uh, Russell, he travels for work. A lot of you guys travel for work. Some of you work on the arsenal and you do different things. You have different hobbies. Uh, you may do different things with people throughout the week. You have a different sphere of influence uh, than I do. And, and I have a different sphere of influence than you do. Uh, some people have uh, social media friends that you're very close to. And you would say, you know, I, I'm really close to people on Facebook, just as close as I'd be to someone here in, in Huntsville. That's, that's a sphere of influence that you have. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think that's by accident? Do you think, do you think where, you, where you work and where you live is just by happenstance? Is that just, just a random thing? God, I believe, has placed you in an environment. And he's given you likes and dislikes. He's given you habits. He's given you abilities. He's given you talents. He's given you uh, different things to connect with other people in your sphere of influence so that you'll have an opportunity to, to, to befriend them and to share the gospel with them. So I want you to think, uh, you know, whether it's the Chamber of Commerce, the Kiwanis Club, the Book Club, Martial Arts Club, Swim Team, uh, if you go to the gym with, with someone on a regular basis, Hunting Club, Fishing Club, the Gun Range, 
uh, Little League Baseball, Upward, Fantasy Football League, whether you play in the band, maybe you play in uh, a band like Eric or you play in a band at school, uh, student government, if you're taking a class somewhere, if you're involved in any kind of sports, uh, you're at work, you go to school, you go to mom's day out, you're part of the PTA, the HOA, the FBI, whatever, okay, whatever part of life you're in, God has placed us there so that we would be an influence to people, so that we would have opportunities to share testimonies and the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that if you are in the habit of going to the gun range with your friend, that you go there tomorrow and say, hey, Mike, uh, you're going to hell. It's probably not the best place to have that conversation at the gun range, right? When he's holding a loaded weapon. But, uh, you know, God has placed us in these places to share our life with one another. Um, what do you say? What do you say in those moments? You could say something like this. Hey, listen, let me tell you something. Did I ever tell you about the lessons that God taught me while I went through cancer? Did I ever tell you about that? No? Well, here's what God did. Or, hey, do you remember when I had that heart problem? This, this is how God used that in my life. Or, you know, I had a wayward son or daughter, and God brought them back. And, and this is how he did it. This is what he taught me through that, through that situation. And so we, we open, we just use everyday moments like that. It's just a natural part of conversation. And then we can say, hey, listen, do you have a relationship with God like that? Do you know, do you know the Lord is your Savior? Um, do you have a church home? You know what you'll find? Most of the time when you have those conversations, you'll be surprised at how many people actually say, no, but that's what I'm looking for. I've been thinking about that, and I've been looking for something like that. And we have this opportunity. It's as simple as sharing one's testimony with lost people around you. I, I get so excited when I read about Huntsville and the, all, all the things that are going on in Huntsville. And really, we're, we're on the cusp here of thousands and thousands of people moving into Huntsville. And we already know that it's growing like crazy. Uh, the, the new uh, census information came back just a few days ago. I'm sure all of you have heard. And uh, Huntsville is now the largest city in Alabama. And uh, just scores of people moving in. Uh, they said that last uh, in 2020, there were 4,000 homes built in Madison County, just Madison County, 4,000 homes. And uh, they say that that's really not enough uh, to keep up with the demand. They said that we really need to be uh, building 5,000 homes every year. And so I, I, I think about that, and that really excites me. Because more people mean more opportunities. And uh, all these people are moving in, many of whom probably don't know the Lord as their Savior. And what an incredible opportunity. Some of them perhaps would move down the street from you or move in next door or uh, maybe begin working with you. You know, that's why, you know, here at at Friendship, uh, we are, I think, purposeful and and intentional about being simple. And and that's not on purpose. We, we, We have a very simple church church model. Uh, We try to free up your schedule as much as we can so that you can live missionally in your neighborhood. And we want you to do that. And pastor has preached for years, even before I got here. Uh, He's been preaching about CPR, right? Cultivate, plant, and reap. Uh, Reach the people where you are in in your circle of life. And so we try to free up your schedule. Uh, Why do we do that? You know, I've been a part of churches that put so many things on 
your schedule and you don't have time being the church outside the church. And uh, that's what it's all about. Uh, You know, as pastors for so long, we used to put so many things on your calendar and then we'd make you feel bad for not showing up. And I just don't think that's that's right. I think we should be free to to come here and, and be trained and equipped and to be encouraged to go out there and, and minister and reach our neighborhood and our city for Christ. And uh, we have so many opportunities that even, you know, Tim has mentioned this morning about the Good News Club and the uh, food distribution. And, and those are just things that kind of we provide, if you will, as a church. But just think about what you can do in your neighborhood, in your, in your community. And I've told you this before. I just did it yesterday. Uh, we have a lady that lives right next to us, and uh, her name's Blanca, and she's a widow and uh, an older lady. And I'm praying for her salvation. And God is doing some, some really neat things. She's at her house all the time. I think I mentioned this last time I preached here. She's at her house. She was at her house yesterday. And uh, I mowed her grass for her yesterday. And she's told me before, you're the best neighbor I've ever had. And she's lost. And uh, I'm praying that uh, she would be saved. But we can look for, for ways to be the church uh, outside of here. What could happen if we saw our neighborhood as an opportunity to share the gospel? Uh, you see, the challenge, uh, you know, for many of us as Christians is that we uh, ebb and flow into isolationism. Um, this is a good quote right here by Kent Hughes. It'll be on the screen for you. Ultimately, we arrange our lives so that we are with non-believers as little as possible. We attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian, Sunday school that is 100% Christian, prayer meetings that are 100% Christian. We play tennis with Christians, eat dinner with Christians. We have Christian doctors, Christian dentists, Christian plumbers, Christian veterinarians, even, and even our dogs are Christian. All dogs go to heaven. You guys remember that movie? My dog's not making it. Uh, he says the result is we pass by hundreds without ever noticing them or positively influencing them for Christ. And listen to this. None of us are Pharisees philosophically, but we may be practically. Hey, listen, never let it be said of us that we overlook people, that we overlook the people that, that Jesus looks for the most. You know, Jesus, he's still in the saving business. God still saves people. And although maybe we don't see as much as, of it as we would like, I think a lot of times we're to blame for that because we're not obedient to his call to go and make disciples. But he still saves people. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, I'm not against Christians hanging out with Christians. I think we need that. We talked about that in our teen life group this morning, just about living in community with one another. But the purpose of hanging at church and coming on Sunday and and being in life groups and D groups, that's to equip you to reach the lost, to live missionally in the world. And that's what Matthew did. I believe Matthew was a man that really had a desire to reach the lost. I think that's why the Pharisees had such a hard time. Because Matthew knew that he was lost. He knew that he needed Jesus, and these Pharisees didn't. You know, the Pharisees, they thought they were okay. They were religious, and and they knew things about the Bible. And when Jesus says here in our passage, I didn't come to save those who are well, but I came to save those who are sick. It's a wonderful picture of people. 
Have you ever heard this when maybe you're inviting someone to church? I've gotten this a few times where you say, hey, do you have a church home? I'd like for you to come to our church. And they say, well, uh, I need to get some things right first before I come. I need to get some things cleaned up first before I come to church. And maybe some of you have even said that before. Well, I say, well, when do you go to the doctor? When do you go to the doctor? Do you go when you're sick or do you go when you're well? You see, the church is full of sick people. That's what makes our church so wonderful is that we are imperfect. And uh, none of us have it all figured out. And we're all on a journey together. And uh, we're all sick and we all need a Savior. And uh, when you come to Christ, you come just as you are. But Jesus transforms you into the image of himself. And it's a process. It's a journey. And it's a journey that, that I'm so thankful to be on. But he starts to work in your life. And, and, and what does Jesus do? He sees something in you. He sees your flawed past. He sees your thought life. He sees these things and he does something extraordinary. See, we all need this. You see, Jesus takes the hurting. He takes the broken. He takes the rejected. He takes the despised. And he does something amazing with it. Years ago in Florence, Italy, there was the great Donatello, this sculptor who would just make amazing things out of marble. And he would uh, sculpt these Old Testament prophets. And he had gotten one of these huge boulders from this uh, marble quarry. And it was delivered and and it was placed inside of uh, the, uh, the courtyard there where they would carve. And he went out and he looked at this piece of marble and he looked at it for a few days and he said to himself, there's no way I can do anything with this piece of marble. He says it's, it's flawed. There's imperfections in the stone and it's just not what I'm looking for. So Donatello actually rejected uh, this piece of stone. So it sat there for a few months and in the courtyard and sculptors would walk by and just look at it. And they would see it uh, there in the courtyard. And one day, uh, one man stopped and he studied it for a while. And he said, you know, I see something in this piece of rock that I'm going to sculpt. And so he took it back to his studio and he worked on this sculpture for two straight years. It was one of his life works. And he decided to present it in January 1504 in the courtyard of Florence, Italy. All the greats showed up that day. Donatello was there. Leonardo da Vinci was there. They were all there to to see this unveiling. Of course, he had a cover over it. And when he pulled the cover back, he revealed to them what will go down in the history as being one of the greatest sculptures of all time. These people applauded and, and they praised and rejoiced when they saw Michelangelo's David. And what did he do? What did Michelangelo do? He took a stone that was rejected He took something that was overlooked, something that was despised, and he made something amazing with it. And you know what? That's what God does for us. Um, He turns us into something beautiful. And he takes us just as we are, but thankfully he doesn't keep us there. That's the God we serve. And uh, maybe you're here this morning and, and you know Christ, okay? You really know him. You know Christ is your Savior. You have a relationship with him. And maybe uh, as I've been talking, you've maybe thought of someone that you work with or maybe in your neighborhood. uh, Maybe you're involved in extracurricular activities with them. And you're sitting there thinking, you know what? I'm friends with this person and I've never given them the gospel. I would encourage you. I want to encourage you to do that this week, to really pray 
that God would give you an opportunity and that God would give you boldness and the words to say that you would reach out to, to some of these people. Maybe it's your next door neighbor. Maybe it's a friend or family member. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you don't know Christ as Savior. You say, you know, I, I'm kind of like Matthew was. I, I've grown up in church and I know some things about the Bible and I know some things about God. But, you know, Daniel, if I'm honest, um, I really don't have a relationship with him. Uh, then I would encourage you to do that before you leave today. And uh, I'm going to pray in just a moment, and we're going to be dismissed to go out into the mission field and to put to practice these things. And I hope that you've been encouraged to do so, that I need to give the gospel to these people that, I, that I'm with every day. But if you're here today and you're not saved, then, uh, you know, Tim's going to be down here at the front. I'm going to kind of hang around down here. And I want you to just come and, and take one of us and just say, hey, I want to know more about having a relationship with Christ. And we would love to do that. We would love to see you come to Christ. We would rejoice with you. And I guarantee it will be the greatest thing you've ever done in your life. Because he will make something beautiful out of your life. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we thank you so much for your word. God, we, we thank you for simple stories. God, the Bible is full of, of simple stories just of, of people who, who are like us, people who, who mess up, people who are away from you, people who sin. But God, you, you are in the saving business, and God, you uh, want us to know you. And so, God, we are thankful for that. As believers, we're thankful for that. And I pray that you would help our church. God, we are excited about the growth in our city and I'm so excited to see the future and the future of this church and what you could do with the people who would be sold out and obedient to you. God, I pray that we would pray. I pray that we'd be a praying church, that we'd pray for opportunities, that we'd pray for revival. I pray that we'd be a going church, that we would go out and, and share our faith and share testimonies of what you've done for us. God, you're a good God. You've done so many good things in our lives. And I pray that we wouldn't keep them to ourselves. God, I pray for the one here today, maybe, that doesn't know you as Savior. God, I pray that they wouldn't leave today without knowing for sure that they have a home in heaven and that they have a relationship with you. God, we pray for our pastor as he's away. Lord, as they'll be traveling home in the next few days. And uh, I pray that you would keep them safe. And uh, God, just give us a great week of ministry and help us to go and make disciples. And we'll thank you for all that you do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.